5 on around page 869, I believe. So last Sunday, we began unwrapping a gift, a gift which Jesus Christ has given to us. And this gift is a revelation. In, In the original language in which the book of Revelation was written, Revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis, and uh, that word means uncovering. It's the, the pulling back of a curtain, the lifting of a lid from a box, the unwrapping of a present to see what's been there all along, but which was hidden until this moment of revelation. We saw last week that Jesus gave this gift, this revelation, this unveiling of hidden realities to show his people that we don't have to be anxious and we don't have to fear. We don't have to wear the political t-shirt that I described last week, which says we're in big trouble. (laughs) The, The disciple John, to whom Jesus first gave this revelation, really needed this gift. So did his contemporaries, and particularly the seven churches who this letter of Revelation was originally written to. Why did they need the gift? Well, because they lived in very troubling times. Far worse than the times we live in today. Most scholars believe that that Revelation was written during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. And and Domitian, we uh, know from the history books, was an emperor with a huge ego and a crazy paranoia along with a serious lack of mercy and morality, which is not a good combination. And so Domitian's reign was so vicious that after he died, the Roman Senate tried to erase all memory of him. That gives you an idea of what kind of emperor he was. Domitian allowed himself along the way to be addressed by the title Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. And he expected his subjects to worship him. And those who refused were counted as traitors. Well, this was a problem for John and for his friends who followed Jesus because they only worshipped one Lord and God, Jesus Christ and the one true God. Perhaps this is why Christians were pressured, were persecuted, and many of them were sent to prison, to torture, and to death during Domitian's reign. You think we've got problems. And so for those anxious times, Jesus gives his people a gift, a revelation, uncovering the good news of how things really are. Last week, we saw that the first good news our passage revealed was this, that someone is on the throne, the heavenly throne, the ultimate throne. There is someone on it, on the throne of thrones. Yes, the emperor might rage and bluster. He might even maim and kill, but his days were numbered. His reign would come to an end. But there is someone on the higher throne who would bring the emperor to account, who would set things right, who would punish the guilty and reward the suffering, and his reign would go on forever. That's great news. That's reassuring news. And yet, that's not how it feels when you're going through trouble and uncertainty and persecution, right? And that's not how it feels when when the nightly news seems to be full of bloodshed and bombings and shootings and of politicians who are not wise and upright and who are not honest and dependable and who do not inspire our confidence. 
That's why we need this gift. That's why we need this revelation. To get our eyes off of our circumstances. To see past and through and above our circumstances to the one on the throne. And today we look at the next part of the revelation in chapter 5. And again, there's, there's so much here that we can't possibly take it all in in half an hour. And so we're going to have to stick to the main things and to skip over some of the secondary details. And so this morning we're going to focus in on what John sees standing at the center of the throne. Before we get to that, though, we begin with what John sees in verse 1, which is a scroll. John sees that the one on the throne has in his right hand a scroll, an an ancient book. And John sees that there's writing on both sides of this document and that it's sealed with seven seals. And then the question is asked, who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? And there's no one. No one in heaven. No one on earth. No one under the earth. No one anywhere who is worthy. And as a result, John weeps. John weeps and weeps. Why? Because there's no one worthy, no one qualified to receive the scroll from the hand of the one on the throne to open its seals, and then to open the scroll to reveal what's inside. But why is it so important to open the scroll and see what's inside? Well, let's review what we've seen so far in this revelation. First, John has seen the door to heaven standing open. We saw that last week, and that was great news. Second, he had been invited in past the door to see into heaven itself. More great news. Third, there in heaven, John had seen on the throne, or he had seen a throne, and he had seen that there was someone sitting on the throne, and that was also great news. Fourth, John has now seen in the hand of the one on the throne a scroll full of writing. Evidently, this scroll is the key to the continuing of the revelation, but the scroll is sealed. And there is no one who's worthy to take the scroll from the hand of the one on the throne or to open its seals. Terrible news. Because it means that there's going to be no more to this revelation. The gift cannot be unwrapped further. The revelation ends right here. It has led us to this book, but the book is closed and no one can open it. That's why John weeps and weeps. But why? Why is he so disappointed, so distraught? What exactly is going on here? Why is, or rather, what is this scroll with its seals? What is inside? What's its significance? And why can't it be looked into? And why does this make John weep so? I think the preacher, Daryl Johnson, does a good job of answering these questions after reading the rest of the book of Revelation to figure out what the scroll uh, means and signifies. He concludes... The scroll contains the full account of what God, in his sovereign will, has determined as the destiny of the world. Seven seals. Seven is the number of completeness. The scroll contains the completeness of God's plan. The scroll contains God's plan for rectifying what is wrong and establishing his gracious rule in the world. 
a plan which by necessity involves judging all that is wrong and destroying all that is in the way. The scroll contains God's plan for bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. The scroll contains the meaning of history, the meaning of world history, the meaning of your history and my history. Don't you long to know what is in the scroll? Who is worthy to open up the plan of history and to bring history to its foreordained conclusion and consummation? Who is worthy to reveal God's plan of salvation and execute the plan on the stage of history? Who can understand the secret and put it into effect? Then the devastating truth hits John. No one was found worthy of this supreme task. No one on earth or under the earth, no one in heaven, no one was worthy to come before the throne and take the scroll from the one who holds it tightly. No one. Not Emperor Domitian, no way. Not Donald Trump. Not Hillary Clinton. But not also any other presidential candidate, past, present, or future. That's why John weeps. That's why we stress. That's why we feel anxious. We innately know that the world needs to be put right. That we need someone with great wisdom, with great character and goodness and power to lead us. Someone with the courage to, at times, go against public opinion and the pressures of the pundits and the opinion leaders when they have gotten themselves off track. Someone with the compassion to stand up for the weak and for the vulnerable, for the little guy who's often unlooked or overlooked. Someone who can put down those who hate and murder and who can protect the innocent from them. Someone who can bring justice. Someone who can put things right. But John sees in this vision that the whole world has been searched and there is no one. Stop expecting the answer to come out of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Heaven has vetted all candidates. There is no one. And yet, there is good news. News which dries John's tears and should calm our hearts as well. Verse 5. Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one foretold in the Old Testament prophecies from ancient days. The one born to take the throne of that ancient great godly king, David. A lion, that's what we need. Someone powerful, Someone whose roar will send evil men to flight. Someone whose powerful claws can protect and defend the weak and the helpless. Someone whose rule has got teeth. Who will not be pushed around by powerful interests. Who will mete out justice and goodness and fairness for all. In the revelation John receives, John is told that this lion has now come. To take the scroll, to open its seals, to unlock the meaning of history and to bring history to its God-ordained conclusion and consummation. John is told that this lion has triumphed. Isn't that great news? We have a leader. We have an awesome leader. 
And then John tells us he turns to look at the lion. And what does he see? Verse 6. He looks for the lion and he sees a lamb. (laughs) He sees a lamb looking as if he's been slain standing at the center of the throne. What? A lamb slain on the throne? What? One commentator exclaims, this is perhaps the most mind-wrenching rebirth of images in literature. The great lion who has triumphed, who is worthy, who is able to open up the plan of history and to bring it to its good conclusion has arrived. Ready to meet the lion? The lion is a little lamb. Mary's little lamb. Looking as if it's been slain. And he's standing at the center of the throne. He's on the throne with and in the one on the throne. The one on the throne is a lamb. Who is worthy to rule, worthy to unlock the plan of history, to bring all things to their foreordained conclusion? A lamb who has been slain. Wow, did you see this coming? (laughs) I mean, how contrary to everything we're taught in this world is true. How contrary to everything covered in the press day by day. How contrary to the narrative spun by our culture, a narrative that we get caught up in. A narrative which causes us to worry and to fret. We're looking for a lion. We think we need a lion. But then God says, yes, I will supply a lion. I have supplied him. Here he is. The lion is a little lamb. C.S. Lewis captures this so masterfully in his famous children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan, the the mighty lion, the, the huge, ferocious, majestic beast who is not tame, but is good, comes to defeat the evil witch queen who holds all the land under her dark spell. But of course, in the course of the battle, um, there's a surprise. Aslan allows himself to be tied up tight by the queen's jeering henchmen and to have his magnificent mane shaved off And then to be slain pitifully on a stone table. And the queen thinks she's won. But then what happens? The table cracks. Aslan is raised up alive again. The witch's spell is broken and evil starts to come undone. Because as Aslan explains, the queen did not know about the deeper magic. The magic, so to speak, that our culture doesn't know about either. And that we so often forget about. That when someone completely innocent, in love, gives up his place, his life, in the place of others, then the ultimate victory is won and good triumphs over evil. That's how the lion has won the victory. That's why he alone is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Not because he's wiser than anyone else, though he is. Not because he's more powerful than anyone else, though he is that too. But rather because in sacrificial love, he was willing to lay down his life like a lamb slain for the sake of others. It's that kind of leadership that is at the very heart of the one on the throne. It's that kind of leadership which the one on the throne deems worthy and appropriate to unlock and to put into effect God's plan for history. 
Not Mr. Trump, sorry, Donald. Not Mrs. Clinton, sorry, Hillary. You may take your throne, so to speak, for four or eight years, but then your reign will come to an end. Meanwhile, above you and beyond you and after you will remain the one on the throne forever and ever. Powerful as a lion, but who at his heart is a slain lamb. That's the kind of leadership which is worthy to outlast and eventually triumph over all. Mussolini, the great Italian dictator who allied himself with Hitler to conquer and rule the world, once said, I'd rather be a lion for one day than a lamb for a thousand days. While Mussolini had his day to be a lion, he came and then he went. And so have all others who have shared this attitude. But the one on the throne has chosen a lamb and the lamb will rule forever. And so John tells us all heaven sings a new song, a song to the lamb, and we are invited to join in as well. Verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Worthy. This, this language was used in John's day commonly to greet and to honor the emperor. Worthy, they would call out as the emperor passed by. Well, there is now a greater one than the emperor on the throne. And he is the one who is truly worthy. And so we worship him. And our worship is genuinely a political act. Because we are proclaiming that all history is actually in the hands of the Lamb. And he will see it to its good, good end. That's why the, the missionary, E. Stanley Jones, has reminded us that the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to. But rather, in delight, Look what has come to the world. Look what has come to the world. A lamb on the throne who has purchased for God people from every tribe and nation. A lamb who is now unfolding the scroll, which is the meaning and the purpose and the destiny of history. A lamb who has made his people to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And we will reign with him forever and ever. And that's why, as the Lamb's followers, we don't need to wear the T-shirt which says we're in big trouble. Sure, we know trouble may come in this world, and, and we should engage politically. We're a democracy. We should stand up for what's right. But we know that we do not have to fear or worry, because whatever may happen in this election cycle or that election cycle, we worship the one who has overcome this world and is bit by bit working all things out for his good purposes. So again, as I did last week, I want to leave you with some stories of my recent trip to Minneapolis. Illustrations of, of what it can look like to live out our identity, um, as the song of praise put it, as a kingdom and priests to serve our God. As we follow the Lamb who sits on the throne, and as we join in his reign, participating in the working out of his purposes.
And how do we participate? How do we join in this kingdom and this reign with the lamb? Well, we do it just like he did. We do it by serving. We reign through sacrificial love. Not by amassing political power so that we can make other people do what is best for us or what we think they should do. No, we reign by winning hearts more than by winning elections. So I saw one of these missional communities that we visited wrestling with this in suburban Minneapolis. This group had had to reboot themselves several times. They had struggled. Their first attempts at being a community hadn't really worked out too well. Um, they, they'd made several unsuccessful efforts to find an outreach to do together. And, and they'd uh, assessed their interests and their, their passions, their, their strengths and their resources. They, they tried to uh, figure out how, led, how that led them. And it led them to several missions based on what they were excited about, what resources they had. They, these missions seemed like slam dunks, but none of them had worked out. And, and so they continued to pray and, and they wrestled with God and they struggled And and then over time, God started to open the door to give them a new mission, one they hadn't even conceived of, which involved reaching out to help the many refugees who were finding their way to Minneapolis. It's It's a big center for refugee resettlement, especially from Asia. Now, here's the thing. Politically speaking, welcoming immigrants and refugees is one of the last things some of the people in this group wanted to do. And culturally speaking, some of them would rather eat hot dogs and apple pie than dim sum or goat curry any day. But God was putting this on their heart and prodding them with his commands in scripture to welcome the stranger and to care for the foreigner. So what did they do? Well, well they did what the one, on the, uh, the, the one on the throne would do. What the lamb who was slain would do. They put their own innate tendencies aside, their own desires and preferences aside, and they began to make room in their hearts for someone else. They opened their hearts to the sacrificial love that they were being called to express for others. Last time I talked to them, they were still working out the details of this. They haven't figured it all out yet. But they do realize that the the lion on the throne is a lamb who has allowed himself to be slain for us. And so they're seeking to develop this kind of loving servant heart as well. Another story, another experience about another missional community that I got to know. Um, I wrote about this one for those of you who uh, picked up a copy of of my report about our trip back in the foyer. It's a group of people who, instead of choosing to meet together in their church building, which is cozy and safe, they chose instead to meet at a residential facility for those living with AIDS. They built relationships with the staff of this facility, and they got their permission to use uh, the outside lawn and a common room um, to host a monthly potluck there. And, And they invited the residents to join them, and they invited the surrounding neighborhood to join them as well for this potluck. And they faithfully held this, this dinner together every month for months and for months. And there were, when we were there, there were probably 40 people there. They've made friends. They've, they've heard stories and they've shared stories. They've had opportunities to rejoice with people, to, to weep with people, sometimes to pray with people or to care for people in practical ways. 
And so as a result, a lot of these people find themselves experiencing some of what is best about church. And, and some of them have met Jesus as well. Why? Because the church came to where these people were at, to be the church. Many of the residents in this facility and the surrounding neighborhood would probably have never found their way to the church themselves. And many of them would probably have refused to go even if they'd been invited. But the church had found them. The church had gone to them. This missional community, instead of doing church in a way comfortable for them, did what the lamb did exercise sacrificial love and said, no, we'll put aside our comfort. We won't make you come to us on our terms, on our turf where we're comfortable. No, we'll bring the church to you. After all, isn't that what Jesus did? The lamb who was slain with, and, and with his blood purchased for God people from every tribe and language and nation and people and refugees and aid sufferers. And lots of ordinary city folk and suburban folk who haven't darkened the door of a church for years. That's who we worship, that lamb. And that's why we don't fear. Because earthly leaders will come and go and we may even experience terrible times at their hands at moments. John did, who gave us this revelation. But we don't have to be afraid because we know that there's someone on the throne and that one is a mighty lion. And that mighty lion is a lamb who was slain. And that's why he's worthy to determine the course of history. And he has taught us to become like him, serving others in love. Because that's how the lion ultimately triumphs. That's how good ultimately wins in the end. And so now we come to this table and I'd like to invite those who are serving to join me.